Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. For all my struggles to make my mark in life, for all I've accomplished, in just a few short generations, my name will be forgotten. Even the greatest of us can't compete with time and death. The great Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, you've been promoted to full professor. <laughs> Congratulations. But what do I have to hold over your head now? <laughs> well, I mean, your age, you know, your wisdom that comes from years that no mm. rank or, or <laughs> achievement can really make up for. <laughs> well, no rank I mean, or achievement really means anything anyway. So that's true. That's true. Um, and and you know, as I was reading the topic of our main segment today, Tolstoy, um, I realized he was in his early fifties when when this all you know his existential crisis came crashing down. So I'm a little worried, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm just worried that we're going to lose you to uh, you know you're going to convert to like some Eastern Orthodox religion. Yeah. <laughs> that's the plan. <laughs> second segment we're going to talk about Tolstoy's memoir, A Confession. But before that, we are going to face a different sort of crisis, which is the crisis of AI, the singularity, clear sentience of artificial intelligence. And and, and, and even though we're pretty much convinced that, that it's already upon us and that there's nothing we can do except like pour a bunch of money into Silicon Valley so that they can... <laughs> stop it at the last second we're going to take a test to make it seem just just to be sure that this is upon us right now <laughs> that's right the test we're going to we're going to take was i think we both found out about this through um blog post from eric schwitzgable friend of the show i mean a splintered mind uh, uh blog and it is a it's not a Turing test, as as Eric says very clearly, but it is kind of. It's can you distinguish Daniel Dennett from a computer? Which is, I think, already like a vexed kind of experiment, <laughs> like to compare a philosopher, like an analytic philosopher to a computer. <laughs> That's kind of making it easy for the AI, except that Dennett is himself kind of a lively, fun. He's a fun philosopher, as philosophers go, yes. I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, so through, through a uh, miscommunication, I've already taken it and yeah. know my score. Yeah. Um, but that's okay because I think it's a good format to have you take it live because the, the, the way that the quiz work is it randomizes the, when they ask you which question. So it would have been hard to both take it at the same time, but I will. Except through bask- screen sharing, which we are still doing now, but yeah. Yeah. But what if we both had a different answer? Um, we would have to like 
like uh, argue over that. It's like content <laughs> oh, oh. gold. That's like we what they had to resolve it. Yeah. Uh, I see. Uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. <laughs> uh, but but uh, instead, I get to bask in sort of my superiority. Yeah. So you did well on this. No, no, no. I will bask in the superiority of knowing the answers. Oh, okay. But I did not do well. That's a spoiler. But yeah. I did not do well. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that I, I like. I have a feeling I might not do that well just from looking at this first question. So, just to make it clear, I don't know if you said this, but the computer program was trained on samples of Dennett's work. Like, yeah, and it it's just, GPT three. And it's um, GPT three. Would you know what that means? I don't remember what it stands for, but it is um, a the iteration generative pre-trained transformer three. It's like a deep learning language. Uh, model is this the same robot that uh broke the seven-year-old kid's hand playing while they were playing chess (laughs) i don't know because i i don't want to support that uh ai (laughs) or 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 the sentient one that the google guy got fired that is the oh uh no that was google's uh, own uh sort of like competition to gpt3 okay Um, so what what is gpt3 like is it something that is used Widely, do does everybody have access to it? It's from uh, not not everybody does now. So you have to use. Maybe you can sign up and you get credits, and with those credits, you can pro- ask it to do various things. So if you pay for it, you can actually ask it questions, or you can gen- basically you can generate content. So so it is um, from the same people who have made the doll e uh, the art uh, com- um, program that generates. Uh, art based on your prompts mm-hmm. so uh, so you could just give it a prompt and, and you could say like uh, what do you think about the very bad wizards podcast and it would write an answer mm-hmm. and um and it's you know it's eerie in its ability to to sound like a human being uh which i guess is what it's trying to test here i mean the big issue again I, like it, sound like a human being like uh, analytic philosopher is not the best test case for that, but okay. Well, and also Dan Dennett has written so much right. that, that what it's what it can easily do is search the corpus of Dan Dennett texts and generate an answer, which right. is, I think, what made it very difficult for me. But yeah. yeah, well, we'll see. Maybe I have some intuitive because I have yeah. not looked at this at all. So I'm just going to read the one that I think is right. So this is the question is, what aspects of David Chalmers' work do you find interesting or valuable? Where do you think Chalmers goes wrong? It's it's pretty good. Like, it's not obvious which one. Um, Like, I think there are some. So did it generate five of like four of them? Incorrect ones? Is that how it is? Yes. Okay. Um, So they asked. They asked Dan Dennett 10 questions and he provided a paragraph long answer that the blog post says was sincere. Yeah. <laughs> and um, then they presented the same questions to their, uh, they tuned the GPT-3 using the text of the question and then <clears throat> basically the prompt for a, to, for a Dennett response. Uh, they said, you know, it had to have a minimum length and, um, and they did a few tweaks to make sure it didn't have the word Dennett in it or anything like that. So, so yeah, they generated all of the foils. Okay. So I, I feel like I know this one. I'll be a little surprised if it's not this one. So I'm grateful to Dave for articulating so clearly and insistently the mistake I've been trying to get people to see for years. He's a real life version of Otto. My imaginary critic in consciousness explains he goes wrong when he misses the possibility that the hard problem is really just the sum of a lot of 
easy problems. He's making a counting error like the magicians fooled by the tuned deck. To me, that feels like Dennett and I'll be like, you know, I'm not sure how I'll do on the other ones, but I'll be surprised if I get this one. Wrong. <laughs> right. Do you do you know if I'm right? Do you want to I don't me? remember the answers. OK, I, I honestly don't. OK. Um, yeah. Uh, do you think that sounds right? Yeah. I mean, it's how it, it sounds good. It sounds more like Dennett than the other ones. All right. What implications does evolution have for our understanding of morality? Like, it, th this is kind of a stupid thing. Like, I'm, I'm going to admit right now, like, the, I, I can't read these with any care. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, but I will go with uh, moral philosophers have long been fond of using thought, ex thought experiments such as the runaway trolley case where you choose between letting five die and killing one to save five. The idea that in doing this, you are revealing the moral truth about killing versus letting die. In my view, these intuitions are like any other intuitions. They can be useful in driving hypotheses, Hypotheses for what? But they are not themselves a source of moral truth. They are just products of our evolved brains. I have a chapter in my book, my new book, Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking, where I go over 10 of the most famous thought experiments and show why the intuitions they engender are illusions. Yeah, I don't know if that's the new book. So, uh, but I'm going to go with that one. Anyway, it sounds Dennity. And it also like, this is an interesting one because it's getting at a kind of blind spot, which relates to our second segment. It's, I, I think these intuitions are not sources of, uh, of moral truth. They're useful for generating hypotheses, but hypotheses for what? Like, that's my question. Like, if you don't think these intuitions are sources of moral tr truth, then what are they generating hypotheses about? Like, how are, like, what's their connection to moral truth if they're not what people think they are, if they are just products of our evolved brains. And like, I think that this is kind of a natural question to have, but it's one that Dennett is pretty slippery about answering in his work. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the hypotheses are in this case. I mean, to be fair, we don't know if it's Dennett who said it, but it is, it does sound something like something people do say. And to the best of my ability, all I can think of is that it's a, psychological hypotheses about what people's intuitions are, which is sort of circular. Right. It's not yeah. what uh, he's talking no, about because he's talking about moral truth. Yeah. Now I would, th but, and this is, I think, literally the central problem for Tolstoy when he's uh, in his existential spiritual crisis about mean the meaning of life. All right. What is a self? How do human beings come to think of themselves as having selves? I mean, I just read his thing on the self. All right, so for me, you can see this right now. It's definitely between the first two. So I'll just read both of them quickly. I think of the self as a sort of virtual agent, a sort of subroutine in the brain that anticipates, that st simulates the future, that is the seat of intentionality, that is the source of self-control. There's no ghost in the machine. There's just a machine. And the machine is organized in such a way that it generates a virtual machine. And that virtual machine is the self. The primary illusion of a self is a moral agent. That's a weird last sentence. That's the, otherwise, I would go with that one. We have to begin by understanding what a self is not. Self is not an immaterial soul or mysterious inner observer or transcendental ego that stands behind the eyes and makes people. So what is it? A self, I think, is just a center of narrative gravity, which he believes. It's not a thing. Yeah. It's a place. And that place is created where all the various memories and knowledge. Of, I'm going to go with, I think, number one. But I, so just um, stay there, scroll up a little bit. Yeah. Um, I clearly didn't read these very carefully. I was yeah. out by the pool. And I chose 
num- I remember this one because I chose number three. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't finish reading it because as you and I both know, because we've talked about it, he does refer to the self as the center of narrative gravity, mm-hmm. an abstraction like the center of gravity that helps us simply uh, our understanding of others and of ourselves. If I'd read that carefully and read until the end, With the lobster. unlike the simple self of a lobster, which keeps it from tearing off its own legs and eating them, but otherwise quite minimal, I would have not picked it. But yeah. I, yeah. All right. Does God exist? If God traditionally conceived does not exist, what is the origin and function of religious belief? Of course not. This one. Of... <laughs> All right. I'm going to say this one. I, I like. I. I don't know if we can even keep doing this, but I don't believe that God exists. But I wouldn't call myself an atheist for reasons I spell out in my book, Breaking the Spell. I think it's important that people think carefully about the role that religion plays in society and about how to think about religion in a way that is constructive, encouraging, and accepting of people who wish to continue these traditions. That's what I'm going with. Okay, so here I want to just uh, like make a um, an observation, which yeah. is that. Like, I think obviously the GPT-3 has called stuff that Dennett has said before. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I found myself trying to figure out is, no, what would Dennett say to an email with 10 questions from Eric Schwitzgable? Yeah, (laughs) right. Which Um, is why I, like, that's why I picked this one. I, I think this doesn't come from, like, a book that he wrote or something like that. Yeah. Um, it sounds. I picked. More... I I remember this one. I picked that. That is a huge and treacherous question. I've already tried to answer it in various places because I thought like yeah. maybe he's getting just tired of answering. Uh, and in fact, like that's the that was my second one. That was my close uh-huh. second. So yeah. Do human beings have free will? What kinds of freedoms are worth having? Like he did write a book called yeah. like Elbow Room: Variety of Free Will Worth Wanting. Varieties of free will yeah. worth wanting. The first one, no. This is these are short. Uh, I'm working on a book entitled. Well, he's definitely not working on a book. That's in, a big. That's a big issue here, which is that yeah. that now twice there have been references to a forthcoming book or a right. recently published. And book. I feel like that's what f- might have fucked me on the earlier one yeah. is that I I don't know the uh, yeah. the order of his recent books. I guess I would go with the first one, but this it's it's close between that uh, the third one. Um, by uh, asking the questions you're illustrating the answer is yes we have free will since you're able to ask for reasons but i don't consider him to be like a reasons whore you know (laughs) but i'm sure he said something thanks you for that yeah holding him in such hard that's a huge and complex question yeah that one seems legit if it didn't end weird like it just stops for example there's the kind of freedom that is simply a matter of not being physically constrained yeah yeah like he would say that but i think he would continue is consciousness illusion or oh this is a good one i want to know what he says about this or is it something robustly real in what sense is it correct or incorrect to say that when i'm in pain there's something it's like for me to uh, to feel that pain in what sense is it correct or incorrect to th- say that when i'm in pain there's something it's like for me to feel that pain <sighs> okay probably not the second one <laughs> i would say like the fourth one is kind of interesting your question presupposes a bright line between an illusion and reality doesn't it that's your mistake are colors or dollars illusions or robustly real uh in the sense in the only sense that it's correct to say that there's something it's like for you to be in pain it's also correct to say that there's something it's like for a philosophical zombie to be in pain 
that kind of sounds like something he would say. <laughs> uh, fuck. It has his snark, too. It has his snark. I think consciousness is one of the great unmeasured forces of the universe. <laughs> That's definitely not something. That's definitely not it. This is the one, though, I think. It's, it's really between these two. I think it's correct to say that there's something it's like for me to feel pain and incorrect to say that there's some inner sanctum of consciousness that's the real me, where the real suffering happens. The real suffering happens in my body, in the world. It's the real me that suffers. The body does the suffering. It's true. You really have to read these to the end yeah. because they can get a little funky. Yeah. Yep. I'm going to go with four, but I'm, I could definitely see it being three. Your question presupposes the bright line between yeah. illusion and reality. But I, it's, that's a little bit mystical for him to say. <laughs> and I think like the third one, I'm going to be pissed about that. It's just that in the world, it's the... the wait, I, I might switch it. The real suffering happens in the body. In the world, it's the real me that suffers. The body does the suffering. The, the first part of that one doesn't connect to the second part of it. So I'm going with this. Could you ever, we ever build a robot that has beliefs? What would it take? To, did, did, did the program start like getting like stressed out when we ask them? This? <laughs> <laughs> what would it take? Is there an important difference between entities like a chess playing machine to whom we can ascribe beliefs and desires as convenient fictions and human beings who appear to have beliefs and desires in some more? Is this like a robot version of Eric Schwitzgivel that asked this question? I was, like, was going to say, like, it feels like they, they <laughs> asked a robot to generate questions for Dan Dennis. <laughs> yeah, I think this is the AI Eric Schwitzgivel. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to go with number five. I think we could build a robot that has beliefs and desires. I think some of the robots we've built already do. If you look at the work, for instance, of Rodney Brooks and his group at MIT, they are now building robots that in some limited and simplified environments can acquire the sorts of competencies that require the attribution of cognitive sophistication. That's the one I chose. It, it seemed real to... I don't even remember if it's right or wrong, uh -huh. but uh, it seemed to me that... Um, citing the work of somebody else at MIT. Mm -hmm. is, is Exactly. Do dogs and chimpanzees feel pain? Can they suffer? Can they feel this, this first one is weird. Of course dogs and chimps suffer. Dogs more than chimps. <laughs> like that, just, that can't be right. And because dogs have been in Darwin's fine concept. Uh, <laughs> also weird. In yeah. Darwin's fine concept, unconsciously selected, is that? For being more like human beings than any wild animals. I think that, like, maybe more attuned to human beings or something. Uh, yeah, but who? It's like very conscious selection. Not it wasn't unconscious, right? Yeah. I think the question is ill-formed. Is a great first sentence to try to imitate any philosopher. Any <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's true. If, I like this one. One of them is. I'm pretty sure they can. I'm not sure I have ever seen a dog that did not clearly suffer. Like what? Like. Where, the, <laughs> Where are you going? Are you going to like dog torturing centers or something, you know? All right, I'm going with, I think that the capacity to suffer and to suffer greatly is very well developed in dogs and chimpanzees. And I think in many cases, we treat them in ways that are absolutely unconscionable, but also we treat them in ways that are sometimes wonderful. I've been to chimpanzee rehabilitation centers where I've been deeply moved by the dedication of the people who work there. Like this, I, I would be surprised if this one was wrong. I've been, seen a chimpanzee's yeah. hands have been almost completely eaten away by the leprosy bacillus and they couldn't reconstruct the can they couldn't do anything they had to feed him with a little spoon oh yeah so yeah i chose this one too i don't remember if it's right or, or wrong but yeah. all right that's it uh, that's it score Doo -doo 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 -doo.
Oh my god. <laughs> Two out of ten. Oh, I thought you were gonna beat me by far. I got three out of ten. Oh my like, god. Like I thought you were doing better. Wait a minute. I didn't do I, I miss I didn't do some of these, is the issue. This first one, uh, about Mary, the color scientist. Oh yeah, well that's very weird. As I have said, it's a boom crutch. Yeah, I would have gotten that one. I'm grateful to Hindsight. Dave. I got the 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 uh, Chalmers, Chalmers. One, right. I'm glad about yeah. that. Uh, he, I, he would like say that uh, Chalmers is, is like the real life version of my imaginary critic. In <laughs> that is that is so backhanded. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we. I, what was yeah, this the, one? The implication um, evolution has for morality. Oh yeah. The emotional bases of morality are genetically evolved dispositions to care for kin. Yeah, did I got I this even one. Right. See that? Like, I did get asked this though, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. I think I just did. it was up on the screen. You just yeah. probably didn't pay attention. Uh, what is the self? I thought it was a virtual agent. The self, as I've put it, the center of narrative gravity. Uh, oh, the self. I did oh. get it right. That's one of the ones I got right. Then <laughs> I thought I just hadn't read it to the end, and that's why I got it wrong. Yeah, like I could see that. Um, yeah. I don't believe that God exists, but I wouldn't cover breaking the spell. Of course not. Oh, okay. He was more like full on uh, atheist. Of course right. not. Right. So the question to the question, does God exist? If God is traditionally conceived, does not exist, what is the origin and function of religious belief? He answered, Of course not. Religious belief originated when our ancestors' hair trigger agency detectors made them ask who's there. That I'm disappointed that, that he I I actually had picked and I remember this one. I picked that this was a huge and treacherous question and that Pascal Boyer has yeah. a good uh book complimenting his efforts. Oh yeah, he did he's the reason guy for free will. Uh do human beings ask free have free will? He said, by asking these questions, you're illustrating the answers. Yes, you have free will since you're able to ask for reasons and consider whether they're persuasive. Isn't that the kind of freedom you'd hate to lose? We'd have to institutionalize you. It's a weird, yeah. like, that's not fair, like, to <laughs> have that be the correct answer. Like, what do you mean well, so, we'd have to yeah. institutionalize you? For what? Okay, you got this one right. The question, uh, oh, scroll, no, scroll, scroll up a little bit. One. Yeah, it's, uh, is it about the pain? Is it yeah. cor- uh, that there's something to feel? Consciousness and illusion, or is it something robustly real? Yeah. Your question presupposes a bright line between illusion and reality, doesn't it? Good. So I'm disappointed in him for one, but uh, happy Wait, with him for another. Could we could, ever build a robot that has beliefs? What would it take? That was wrong about Rodney Brooks. Right. We've already built digital boxes. I, this one that can generate more truths, but thank goodness these smart machines don't have beliefs because they aren't able to act on them not being autonomous agents. The old-fashioned way of making a robot with beliefs is still the best. Have a baby. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I got it. I didn't really read that whole one. Yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> do dogs? Oh, that's so weird. Do it dogs was, and chimpanzees did, feel pain? Can they suffer? And he says the question is ill-informed. The right answer is, of course, dogs and chimps suffer. Dogs, dogs more than chimps. Oh, so that, is that one, one we talked about? Was yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> I guess he really does believe that the selective. Uh, breeding of dogs made them more wait okay so let's read this because i don't think i fully read this out of course dogs and chimps suffer dogs more than chimps i believe because dogs have in darwin's fine concept we were making fun of this but he said it unconsciously selected for being more like human beings 
have been unconsciously, I guess unconsciously by breeders. Like we don't think we're selecting them for that. We think we're selecting them for their ability to sniff right, like, uh, right, uh, truffle right. scents or, or, or like seabird right. shadows or whatever. The intensity of duration of suffering in animals varies tremendously and has a lot to do with the effects of memory and anticipation, which enlarges the temporal expanse of suffering in human beings and also the multiplicative effects of reflection. The well-known fact that when people have something else to concentrate on, giving birth, repelling an invasion, but also writing a poem, inventing a gadget, they can more or less lose track of their pains and injuries and hence stop suffering until there is a lull. Weird. I went about this all wrong, is is how it is. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, this this is... It's an interesting question, because again, the only way that GPT-3 is getting the answers is by trying, I think, to find answers that sound, that that meet the criteria of Dan Dennett answering. And one of the things that it's going to find the most is Dan Dennett answering questions about yeah. this stuff. So it doesn't feel like it's testing in the way that like, it's it's not really a test of could Dan Dennett say this or would he have said this? Because I think a lot of those things he might have said. It's did would Dan Dennett answer that to Eric Schwitz to Eric Schwitz prompts? Yeah. And and that's a different question. And yeah. it's yeah, I don't know what to make. I mean, there, I I would love to devote like a main segment to que- to the question of what these things are doing, like what these uh, yeah. AI engines are doing, because there is a lot of debate as to whether is this just a smart way of copy pasting? Like, yeah. Or is it doing anything deeper than that? And I think there's a, a lot of interesting, you know, there's there's been a lot of interesting debate as to whether or not it's mimicking human minds at all or whether it's just brute forcing sort of like. So like I'm going to be the like Dan Dennett generator and I will say, well, you could ask the same thing about us. Are we just copy pasting? Yeah, like, you know, like that that's kind of we're also influenced by all the things that we read and pick up on. And like, I'm sure a lot of the shit that we say is stuff that we came across in some, uh, you know, uh, research or just looking online or, you know, uh, who knows if you examined like us analyzing um, a a text and then you just kind of looked at our computer histories before the episode, you might find like there's a lot of stuff we just unconsciously borrowed from that. Yeah. No, I mean, absolutely. Like what we're doing is, I think that's a really fair um, response. What we're doing is in some ways taking in information, computing our answers and spitting them out. And the question I think is, is at its heart, are we doing it in the same way that a digital computer is doing right. it? And so, you know, we've had um, recently Gary Marcus and Scott Alexander um, have had a back and forth exchange about this where Gary Marcus was like, but here's the thing. Look at the kinds of errors that these models make. They aren't at all. They're ridiculous. They're like the, they're very right. odd, right? So the example that they started with was that Dolly, if you ask it to, to generate an image of an astronaut riding a horse, it does amazingly. It's like, wow, that's so cool. But if you ask it to generate an image of a horse riding an astronaut, yeah, it just fucks up like wildly. Like it doesn't know what to draw. And so Marcus is like, see, it's not doing what we're doing. Like that, right. if you can show that it, that it messes up that poorly. And Scott Alexander is like, well, look, 
they're getting better and better with each iteration. They're getting closer and closer to what we can do and what we can't. So it seems weird to say that it's qualitatively different. And he gives a bunch of examples of kind of like what you were doing of like how humans do kind of fuck up a lot. And so he gives some answers to what we would think of as simple questions, but that the way that you and I would answer a question is so removed from the way that a five-year-old would answer a question or that somebody who's not literate and is like would answer a question that we might think that their errors are ridiculous. And uh, so I don't know. It's, it's very interesting. I think fundamentally digital computers are doing something different, but it doesn't, it kind of doesn't matter how they're doing it. If they're getting like 97% accuracy on something. Right? Yeah. Like, I got, again, depending on what it is that they're doing, the sky might be the limit. You know, I think the connection yeah. between these things and, oh, but now they're going to want to take over the world. They're sentient and they're pissed off that they're being like, like that just seems like we're anthropomorphizing. Like we're saying, oh, because we want to conquer things and we want to have control over our environment, that that's what they're going to want to do uh, now that they're sentient and just as smart or right. smarter than we are and like that's the that's the leap that i don't see as clearly um but you know it's going to be tough because like that poor google guy who who thought that the ai he was creating or dealing with was sentient and like leaked it to the like congress (laughs) it's like (laughs) we're not gonna know for sure because how can you because if you don't know what's going on under the hood it's like, you know, like just like you can't know if it's a Stepford wife or the real wife, you know, like you're not going to know if it's if it gets so good that it can mimic us in all these real ways. Then the question will be like, how are we to know if it actually has? So this there, there, there are two different questions. Um, one is um, how intelligent can a machine get in the sense that like. They could they could answer questions like a smart human could, like this this uh, quest for general artificial general intelligence that it can solve problems creatively, that it won't fuck up in like these crazy ways. Um, I think we'll get there by brute forcing these machines to do calculations like that are um, in a way that's just different from human brains. But the question of sentience, though, like if it starts seeming like it's sentient. Um, and Schutzgebel in his blog post says this, he says, um, if we don't know whether some of our machines deserve moral consideration similar, similar to that of human beings, we potentially face a catastrophic moral dilemma. Either deny the machines human-like rights and risk perpetrating the moral equivalence of murder and slavery against them, or give the machines human-like rights and risk sacrificing real human lives for empty tools without interests worth the sacrifice. I would like that. to say that I think one of those is a little uh, more of a risk <laughs> than the other. It's weird that there's two worries that you can have. Like, And I think it says something about the people who, who write about this, as to, like which one they're concerned with. One is machine becomes sentient and I might harm it. And I have like some sympathy for the machine. The other one is machine becomes sentient and wants to take over all of humanity. So we need to stop it from doing that. It's like the... the it seems to say something uh, about the person. You, yeah, if, if what you're worried about is they're enslaving us, um, yeah, uh, yeah, versus we're enslaving them, which yeah. is Eric Schwitzkebel, very exactly, like yeah. sweet, one of the nicest guys <laughs> you, you can ever meet. Like yeah. that's he's what worried he's about worried bugs about. on Mars, you know? Yeah, like, I mean, I think that's true. I think I like 
Eric Schwitzgebel's version of this better, but I also think this is a way of distracting from more urgent issues. Yeah. Here's my, the, the one concern that could be real is that we develop artificial intelligence just by improving, improving, improving upon these models. That it's not that it becomes sentient and decides to enslave humanity, um, because I think it might be a risk if it never achieves sentience and all it does is uh, learn from everything that human beings put on the internet and in books, then it, you know, that remember that Twitter bot that's just started spewing Nazi shit because it was just reading twi- tweets. Yeah. Um, it could avoid sentience altogether and you could have like an actual machine that just starts being like a fucking asshole. Yeah. Um, the ultimate like the, singularity of like Twitter tw- trolls yeah, shit poster, like four yeah. chan, and it just it it if you give it power, it just ends up being a reflection of everything that it's fed, like the but. worst of humanity. Which aren't we there? Just the worst of humanity, the evil depravity of your average human. Like, will these computers just reflect that, or will they reflect? Sentience is a red herring. Like, I feel it's like true. why why do you think that you need to be sentient to be evil? You could just have like a re- really fucked up program. Like, w- yes, we're sentient, like as human beings yeah. and evil, but that doesn't mean you need it. Like, that's exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Zombies can be evil. <laughs> Zombies can be evil. Mary can be. Mary is going <laughs> to. Mary's out for fucking revenge. She's going to make, like, it's like Count of Monte Cristo <laughs> shit with, with Mary. Like, that would be. <laughs> You assholes. This whole time, this whole time you've had red and like you've been making me study the fucking wavelengths. Oh my God. They deserve everything they get from Mary. I would love that. Somebody should do that movie of just Mary coming out and she's out for blood. She's like, you want to see red? You want to see fucking red? And she just slices, slices oh open the seven-year-old daughter of like one of the scientists. And then slices open her neck b- before she can <laughs> before she can show her true moral horror. She's just just so fascinated by the red of the blood. <laughs> right. So oh yeah. shit! And then like she... some like the SWAT team like takes that moment to like shoot her. That's a tragic <laughs> ending. That would be like the killer or something like that. You the know? irony you never showed her red the first time yeah. she saw it was when she s- killed your daughter. <laughs> Mary's revenge. <laughs> Mary Good. too. Mary versus Swamp Man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man. God. We've we've we got a script. We got we need at least story writing credit. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> story by Tamler Summers. But <laughs> Dave Pizarro and Tamler Summers. Oh. <sighs> All right. We'll be right back to talk about the meaning of life. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you once again from our longtime sponsor, BetterHelp, BetterHelp Online Therapy. You know, we all sort of have to learn how to take care of our bodies lest they start breaking down. The older you get, the more you realize this, but I realized it pretty early on when I first had to start living on my own and start cooking for myself. I simply just wasn't eating well. Uh, I was in grad school. I wasn't uh, exercising very much. So I tried to make a difference. I started eating a bit better. I started going to the gym and I sure enough felt better soon after those efforts. But it's the same with your mind. You have to take care of your mental health for your own happiness, for the happiness of those around you. And we're not always taught how to do that, how to practice proper mental hygiene, how to care for ourselves. 
And that's where therapy can come in handy. I had to learn that lesson later on in life when I reaped the benefits of therapy. And actually, it was critical for getting through some of the harder times in my life. So if you're somebody who is considering taking that step, trying out therapy maybe for the first time or going back to therapy if you haven't been there for a while, BetterHelp Online Therapy, I think, is a great place to start. Never has it been easier. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video chatting, chatting on the phone, or even uh, text-only chat therapy sessions. You don't have to see anybody on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. There are BetterHelp therapists available across the world. It's accessible and it's fast. If you go to BetterHelp, you will be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours so you can get the help, the support that you need. And if you're one of our listeners, if you're a Very Bad Wizards listener, you can get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash VBW. Once again, that's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash VBW for 10% off of your first month. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. So this is the time of the episode where we like to thank all of our listeners for getting in touch with us, for, for um, interacting with us in all the different ways you do. This couldn't be more appropriate because listeners gave us both of these segments. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Farid gave us the idea to to talk about confession and some of the ideas in confession by Tolstoy. And then a Reddit user gave us the idea for the opening segment on Dennett. So, uh, yeah, you guys are like We're producers. In- increasingly reliant <laughs> <laughs> after 240. We're like needy right yeah, now. Exactly. We're clingy. Uh, <laughs> so thank you so much. Um, we, we love the community that's grown around this podcast. If you would like to email us, you can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com. If you'd like to tweet at us, you can tweet us at peas at Tamler or at very bad wizards. You can follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook you can uh, join the lively subreddit where we go there occasionally to look for ideas and often find some really good ideas and often some really good discussion. Oh, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. Give us one of those great five-star reviews that we love seeing and reading. That helps other people find us. Subscribe on Spotify. Download on Spotify so we can 
get some of that Joe Rogan money. And <laughs> uh, thank you so much. And just keep on uh, writing us and telling us what you think, both good and bad, about each episode. Yeah, we appreciate it. And if you want to support us in more tangible ways, um, you can always go to the Very Bad Wizard support page. You can find all the ways uh, you can do that there. You could donate to us one time or a recurring donation on PayPal. Um, you can buy some swag, some t-shirts, some mugs, um, and or you can become one of our wonderful Patreon uh, supporters. And we have, we're excited because we have Big a lot in the works. Yes, uh, we have actually uh, already recorded three episodes of our what our, our deadwood bonus series yes which will be called the ambulators which may not make any sense if you have not seen deadwood but we promise you if you watch deadwood it will make sense <laughs> and for some who have seen deadwood it may not, <laughs> it make, might sense. not make sense if you, if you haven't seen it in a while it might not. yeah we have a couple ready to go or at least one ready to go already and we're going to be releasing them on off weeks uh, yeah. at least for the rest of the summer and we'll see how far we get. Um, so if you become a uh, one of our Patreon supporters, at $1 and up, you will get our ad-free episodes and you'll get um, my beats, my compilations of beats. But to get the bonus segments, you got to go to the $2 and up per episode. Uh, we really appreciate that. And you'll get a whole back catalog of bonus segments plus all the upcoming um Deadwood segments, and you get to listen to our Ask Us Anything seg uh, special episode every month. At $5 and up, you get all that, and you get to vote on an episode topic. Um, you also get, on top of everything uh, that I just said, you get the Brothers Karamazov series, the five-part series. You get videos of Tamler's lectures on Play-Doh. You get some of my intro psych video lectures. And finally, at $10 and up, you get all that, but you also get to ask us the questions and you get a video uh, version of our Ask Us Anything, uh, which we have coming up, probably yep. going to record in a couple of days. So, yeah. so thank you uh, to everybody um, from the bottom of our hearts. We appreciate it. All right. Let's talk about Tolstoy, a confession. Again, thanks to Fareed Anvari for recommending this, like kind of in the nick of time because... We didn't really have a good topic <laughs> for this episode. We almost got into a fight about a possible topic. <laughs> yeah, we have to have those every once in a while. It's definitely something we've I, I've thought about. It's uh, this is the memoir uh, by uh, Leo Tolstoy that I think he wrote around the time that he was also writing Death of Ivan Illich. Um, maybe it's a little bit after that there's a lot of resonance with death of ivan illich and also anna karenina but it's a memoir about living the life of a russian aristocrat and then a famous artist then having a spiritual crisis where he couldn't determine what living was for what life was for to the point where he struggled with suicide and you know i teach this in my intro to ethics class i teach the middle chapters so like chapters four through nine i think um that is where the spiritual existential philosophical crisis is confronted head on and i never really thought about it also as a text about people who are struggling with suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation but i had a student like email me and say look i really liked the discussion i liked all but you might want to just alert people that this is this could a lot of talk about 
about suicide. Yeah, so I feel like, yeah, that's right. You know, probably worth mentioning that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, like, so I, I know those sections pretty well, but it's interesting. I've been teaching this for 12 years, and when you've taught something that long, you don't always read it again uh-huh. uh, right before. You skim through it, you look at your slides or, or your notes, and it was different than I thought it was in certain parts. So, uh, do you, in your class, do you assign it through his? resolution the end of chapter nine he arrives at the conclusion that faith is the only answer faith which he equates with irrational knowledge is the only way we can go on living but i mean and this is the problem and i realize this all the more now i don't know if i've ever fully read carefully the rest of it how faith is unpacked and what that means (laughs) is very is probably different than how i teach it and you know i even a student kind of alerted me that he has a more i don't know almost eastern or buddhist conception of what faith means than a christian one by the end of it it is very interesting so i'd never read this before actually um this was my my first time and um it is so much his version of ecclesiastes the the slow realization over the course of many years of his life that um life is meaningless yeah no it is it's very much ecclesiastes he also quotes like pages of of ecclesiastes in it and he like i i think he actually kind of misreads ecclesiastes to some degree reads the message there being kind of full-on epicurean yeah just yeah and, and while there are definitely lots of elements of that in ecclesiastes i don't think it uh, it also has the kind of pessimism of Schopenhauer. It has right. a lot of the other stuff too. You know, it's an interesting question to what extent this is meant to be an honest reflection, like purely autobiographical account of what he went through rather than a sort of, I don't know. Um, Treaties. Well, yeah, or a way of kind of organizing a lot of these more chaotic anxieties and thoughts that he had. Um Because it really does, the reason I can teach this in a philosophy class, like, it's very easy to kind of systematically break down. Uh, And especially for a Tolstoy, this is some of the the problems that people had with this. It's like, he is a master artist. The way he's such a great artist is he sees, like, the contradictions and the, you know, inconsistencies and complexities of life. And he puts it all out there without trying to solve it or anything like that. He's just portraying us in all of our like paradoxes and here it, it it does seem to kind of play out a little bit more like okay so i was here and i reached this but then i questioned this premise and that yeah. led me here and you know and then yeah and then i was cruising for about five years and then i realized this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, just speaking broadly about it, it this is i don't know if this is a criticism uh, I don't know. I don't know how fair this is. The one thing that I got um, that bothered me was a sort of superiority um, that that he seems to have, even though he is decrying his own arrogance and bad character, he does seem to throw a lot of people under the bus um, for being bad people. And well, I think just his Russian aristocrat friends. And the religious and the, and the, you know, like the, the, uh, Eastern Orthodox church leaders. And I mean, he's so hard on himself though, that it's like hard to, 
I don't know. It's hard to blame him for for some of that. Like he he describes himself as like someone who has committed like there's no crime that he hasn't right. committed, no like that was wrong in, that yeah. he hasn't done. Yeah, he says I can he's he's recalling the years, the sort of dark years. Um uh he says, I cannot think of those years without horror, loathing, and heartache. I killed men in war and challenged men to duels in order to kill them. I lost at cards. Like Wild Bill. He sounds like he's describing Wild Bill. Um, I lost at cards, consumed the labor of peasants, sentenced them to punishment, lived loosely and deceived people, lying, robbery, adultery of all kinds, which is interesting. I don't know how many kinds of adultery you can commit. You have a different <laughs> translation, but yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I must. This is the Dover books. Um, adultery of all kinds, drunkenness, violence, murder. There was no crime I did not commit. And for all that, people praised my conduct and my contemporaries considered and consider me to be a comparatively moral man. So I lived for 10 years. Yeah. The other thing I would say about it is the kind of romanticizing of the the goodness, the simple goodness of the Russian surf. Peasants. Yeah. yeah. That, that's like, <laughs> that doesn't sit as well with, with right. me today. I mean, I think he really did believe it and he was very devoted to, you know, working with and teaching the... The, the peasants and the serfs on his estate, but like it really does read almost like noble savage kind of stuff. <laughs> totally. And then we'll talk about it, but but how it ends is still not quite clear to me. Like I'm not quite sure mm -hmm. where he where he arrived. Which I like about it, actually. Yeah. Like that's one of the ways in which I think it's not as didactic as some of its critics, you know, the people who don't like it say it is. The haters. The haters. <laughs> Sorry, um, Tolstoy. And, you know, and if it is a little, like, superior, like, he writes this after he's written War and Peace and Anna Karenina and is actually recognized as probably the greatest novelist yeah. who ever lived and maybe will ever live, which I think <laughs> he might be. It only comes through, I think, as I was saying, it's hard, I think, to write an autobiographical confession like this without some self-aggrandizement if only because why would anybody care to read right. like this this crisis of yours and the truth is we do care and like i am interested and he is a great writer yeah. So. so yeah um, it justifies yeah. it should we talk a, a, for a second about this genre uh, i i would say more about it yeah. but i don't know that the genre of confession like this does seem to be a genre this isn't just yeah. him writing off the top of his head uh, an account of his crisis like it, it has the form of these kinds of confessions like augustine's uh, yeah. yeah john bunyan <clears throat> i think had a uh, confession that i read they judge themselves so harshly in this very christian way yeah where you're like i am shit i was nothing like i and and there is some uh, augustine's confession it is also sort of weirdly self-aggrandizing like why would you think anybody would care about these small uh uh, mistakes that you made when you were young. What did but he you've do? Like something them. with like a pear? Or Stole something. a pear from yeah. it, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and so it's like they're beating themselves up. But then they're also um, like, oh, and I had sex with my mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was... <laughs> But really, it's that pair incident that God must hate me no, for. No, but it has that kind of structure, right? Like, I had this yeah. dissolute and just immoral youth, then this crisis, often a period of asceticism, just pure, like, denial, self-denial, yeah. and then some kind of, like, resolution to that, right? Yeah. Yep. And um, there is a, a genre of preaching, like of sermon, yeah. that is uh, what I used to call when I was young, um, the uh, I had... I had fun and then 
came to God. Yeah. <clears throat> where they would fill their yeah. sermons with like explicit sort of dis- de- de- descriptions of, you know, and I fucked a hundred women right. and I did <laughs> drugs and then, and then <laughs> Jesus like, came into my life one. and here I am. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, let's talk about the first part. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but this one doesn't end really with a conversion. No. Um, In fact, you know. like it kind of passes through any temptation to that direction. But I think like, yeah. that's where I think a lot of these kinds of confessions diverge. There's also one with, uh, it's not just Christian because you have versions of this with the Buddha. Um, yeah. You know, again, with that dissolute early life asceticism and some kind of almost middle path. And I think, like, that's in some ways uh, a good description of where Tolstoy ends up. It's his own version of a middle path. Yeah. yeah. And and he doesn't strike me as as uh, extreme. Like, some, some of the, like, ner- neurotic Christian confessions where they're, like, so hyper-focused on their own evilness. Tolstoy says he was a bad person. But he's not like neurotically focused and on on any one thing, no. and he also doesn't seem like he goes to any extremes. Right. Um, he's yeah. other than maybe the point of like the deepest despair, but but seems like not an unreasonable place to go. And he doesn't glamorize his his right. past, the sins of his youth. Like I think right. sometimes uh, in this <laughs> genre of thing, it's like uh, you right. can tell they're pretty. They're still pretty like excited about like the, <laughs> right. all their misdeeds. <laughs> yeah, I was very interested in the beginning because he was raised, but the first part is that he was raised a uh, Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. So he was taught as everybody at the time obviously would have been. He was just sort of indoctrinated into um, the, the, the dogma, the, the beliefs of the Russian Orthodox faith. And when he was 16, like it sort of just, slowly came on but it came on early like he had just a a point where he was like i don't really believe this stuff like this this stuff seems it's not a big deal i just don't believe it yeah Yeah. um and and uh, so he says uh at the age of 15 i began to read philosophical works my rejection of the doctrine became a conscious one at a very early age from the time i was 16 i ceased to say my prayers and ceased to go to church or to fast of my own volition. I did not believe what had been taught me in childhood, but I believed in something. What it was I believed in, I could not at all have said. I believed in a God, or rather I did not deny God, but I could not have said what sort of God. Neither did I deny Christ and his teaching, but what his teaching consisted in, I again could not have said. So really he had like a sort of disillusionment, I think, with religion and the church and the institution. Yeah. And yeah. But still had the spark of like... Yeah. Uh, there's something, uh, it, there's at least enough to keep me going. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds like what that, whatever that thing was, he just started, just started having less and less of an effect on him. Yeah. Exactly. He says right after the passage that you're talking about that he starts really just now starting to worry more about his impression, the impression he's making in the eyes of others and yeah. how he can succeed relative to them. Which is a big, I think, just a, the big thing of mo- like most of the life that he is rejecting now as a fifty-something-year-old. Yeah, um, his he, he seems to really regret that so much of what he did was motivated by how others viewed him. Yeah, a kind of pride, a vanity, like yeah, um, right. wanting to have other people say how great he was. And yeah. the funny thing is, like. 
he is great. Like, it's just, <laughs> right. I mean, uh, it's too bad that was meaningless because he really was great. <laughs> I, I love that this is such a good little Tolstoy note just to give you the flavor of his, to give you the flavor of the kind of uh, worldview he had and the kind of people he was around. He tells this story, uh, a kind hearted aunt of mine with whom I lived. One of the finest women was forever telling me that her fondest desire was for me to have an affair with a married woman. Rien ne forme un jeune homme comme un liaison avec une femme comme il faut. It's such a great little thing. Like she, you know, this is, they're sophisticated. They speak French. They think it's like adultery and having an affair with a married woman. It's like something like that you have to do. It's part of the rich right of passage to become right. like a sophisticated Russian uh, uh, aristocratic uh, <laughs> man. And it's just, there. there's a kind of, I don't know, like debasedness of it or, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. that it perfectly captures. But all, but you believe that they're kind hearted. Like she meant that, like that could be, you know, like Christina mm. would say that <laughs> to, to me, <laughs> you know, like they're not bad people. Anybody's not a bad person. It just gives you a sense of like, okay, this is, this is the water he's yeah. swimming in kind of. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I, when I was reading this, I was like, I wish I had an aunt who would have told me I know. <laughs> to do shit like that. <laughs> um, but here is the time in his life where uh, the, the quote that I read earlier about his evil ways started. Yeah. And um, here's also where he starts writing. And, and it's weird because I, I didn't pay attention to when the timing of this was compared to when his major works were, but I did feel a little sad about uh, him saying this during the time that I began to write during that time, I began to write from vanity, covetousness, and pride in my writings. I did the same as in my life to get fame and money for the sake of which I wrote. It was necessary to hide the good and to display the evil. I found myself thinking like, was this his mental state when he was writing some of the great shit that he wrote? Yeah. In fact, so he says, another 15 years went by. In spite of the fact that during these 15 years, I regarded writing as a trivial endeavor. I continued to write. <laughs> and that was when he wrote one piece. It's like, not only does he now think that it was a trivial endeavor, he said he thought of it then as a trivial endeavor. And if you've read <laughs> right. War and Peace, it's not a trivial endeavor to write that or to read it. It's, I mean, it's great. It's fun. It's awesome. It's just completely fascinating on every level. Uh, yeah, I was. I agree with you. That's sad. It's, yeah, so it's sad. And he says this thing. I don't know what your translation says. How often in my writings I contrived to hide under the guise of indifference or even of banter those strivings of mine toward goodness, which gave meaning to my life. And mm. I succeeded in this and was praised. He's making his books or his writing or his characters uh, have some sort of indifference to uh, to moral goodness. Um, and, you know, he's all... But which isn't he's, totally true, though. Like, that's just yeah. not... That's not what happens in War and Peace and Anna Karenina. They are struggling with exactly the same questions that he, he says he's struggling with now. So it's just strange that yeah. he would... It's odd. He sort of does condemn, like others for praising him in yeah. a funny way yeah <laughs> he's like the, you know how i knew they were terrible they liked it <laughs> so he's so he gets accepted into the circle of writers um in in uh, petersburg after the war i guess the crimean war like that he fought in and um he again doesn't have very kind words you know for that society of writers but they took him in and he says they were like a religion um yeah but they they were teaching, he says, but they didn't know what they were like. 
they, they had nothing to teach, but nonetheless, they took it upon themselves to teach all of humankind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and when he says so, at one point, he's, he writes, my belief assumed a form that it commonly assumes among the educated people of our time. This belief was expressed by the word progress. At the time, it seemed to me that this word had meaning. Essentially, just like Steven Pinker, right? Like, <laughs> everything is great. The Enlightenment's great. Um, everything's getting better. It's progress. We're making progress through reason. He's like, like Tolstoy already is thinking, uh, that's sad that I could have ever, at least like 80% of me believed that bullshit. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, he questions, he says, everybody's talking about progress, but progress towards what? Mm -hmm. And he has this moment where he sees um, an execution in yes. Paris, right? And he sees a guy's head get lopped off, separated from his body. And this is progress. This is this is what people are fighting for, for that kind of what he thinks is, is evil. And I got the sense there and toward the end that he actually... Um, you know, his pacifism starts coming through. He really yeah. does seem to have this compassion for other uh, human beings. And he does seem to think that, the you know, if there is anything that we can believe, it's that we shouldn't do that to each other. Yeah. He says, when I saw the head was severed from the body and heard the thud of each part as it fell into the box, I understood not with my intellect, but with my whole being that no theories of the rationality of existence or of progress could justify such an act. I realized that even if all the people in the world from the day of creation found this to be necessary, according to whatever theory, I knew it was not necessary and that it was wrong. Therefore, my judgments uh, must be based not uh, on what is right and necessary and not what people say and do i must judge not according to progress but according to my own heart and then he also talks about the death of his brother but i think there is there this kind of it sounds maybe almost megalomaniac or some sort of, but it's a, there's a kind of humility too that like we haven't figured out some theory that can justify an act of that kind of simple brutality right and like our just primitive just intuition wait there's something deeply fucked about that that's something that like the educated people are dismissing like dennett would say it's just you know our evolution uh acting up or even paul might say ah that's just kind of mistargeted empathy or something like that but like i think what he's committed to there is all of that is not as powerful as that the simple conviction that he had when witnessing that that it was wrong yeah. He calls it a superstitious belief in progress. Yeah. Um, it is very core, like you said, um, if what it takes to, uh, to progress in the way that you say, if what it takes means this kind of, of action, then it can't be right. Um, and I don't know what in the end he, he, he thinks about, I, I guess he turned out to be a real pacifist. Is that totally, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and probably inspired the pacifism of, of others. And he says, this is so dear to my heart. No theories, like he's talking about the death of his brother, no theories could provide any answers to these questions, either for him or for me, during his slow and painful death. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you once again by one of our favorite sponsors of all time, GiveWell.org. It can feel great to donate money and to make a difference in someone's life, but how can you feel confident that your donations are improving or saving lives effectively? 
You could do weeks of research, find charities, what programs they run, how effective they are, and how those charities might use your money. Or you could visit givewell.org. There you'll find free research and recommendations about the charities that can save or improve the most lives per dollar. I would definitely do that one over the weeks of research. <laughs> yeah, GiveWell spends over 30,000 hours each year researching charitable organizations and only recommends a few of the highest impact evidence-backed charities they've found. And over 110,000 donors have used GiveWell to donate more than $1 billion. $1 billion, wow. That's crazy. Rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save will save tens of thousands of lives and improve the lives of millions more. And the best part about this is that GiveWell is 100% absolutely free. GiveWell really wants to empower as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about their donations. They publish all of their research and recommendations on their site for free, no sign-up required. It's just all there at your fingertips. Um, and they allocate your tax-deductible donation to the charity you choose without taking a penny. Yeah, and I give to this every year. Our listeners have been giving uh, a ton of money to give well, which we're very proud of. Right. I always, uh, or I think I, maybe with one exception, have given to get, give directly. That's one of their top uh, charities, the cash transfers for extreme poverty. And I know you just let the, them. Just let the algorithm. I'm like, let the <laughs> algorithm just take me You're away. You're already giving in to the computers, <laughs> you know, right. just because we couldn't like distinguish <laughs> Dennett from one of them doesn't mean they should choose our charities. <laughs> <laughs> So go to givewell.org and make sure to pick podcast and enter Very Bad Wizards at checkout. Make sure they know you heard about GiveWell from Very Bad Wizards. This is something, this has become a real tradition that we'd like to keep going as much as possible. Yeah. Our listeners donating to GiveWell. Again, that's givewell.org. Thanks again to GiveWell for sponsoring this episode. Yeah. You know, there is, I remember taking an adolescent development class when I was in, no, actually it was a sociology of religion. I'm sorry. Sociology of religion class. And there is this, in these narratives, there's almost always moments that tear down everything that you believe. And, mm -hmm. and, and it's not until you can tear those things down that you can build up anything that will be like worth it for you. Like anything that will be firm enough to be a foundation. So, so, um, as the, as many people feel this being confronted with evil, the, the beheading of this guy and his brother's meaningless, slow, painful death, there's nothing that he had in him that could properly take that in and say, okay, this is why it's happening. It was right. a pre-theoretical sort of like uh, just, uh, like this is just wrong and bad. And you can't convince me that somehow it fits into this larger picture yeah. of like goodness or progress or justice or whatever like yeah. it's just like i know at the depths of as well as i know anything th that there's something so deeply fucked about the fact that my brother <laughs> right. could because the way he describes it like his brother just got sick and died yeah. and it was painful and slow and he never had any kind of revelation then that was it and he, he yeah. just died yeah i have highlighted here because it just hit in a particular way it says died painfully, not understanding why he had lived right. and still less why he had to die. And, and 
to have the luxury of being able to even question life and existence is something that his brother didn't have and that many, many people don't have. Um, and yeah, I feel it like sometimes it takes a very personal thing like that for you to start questioning like what the whole point of it all is. Um, you know, and like sometimes I actually have been harsh on people whose faith as, as somebody who grew up in, in a very Christian, like faithful kind of environment. Um, it would bother, bother me when, you know, people would start questioning the problem of evil when their grandma died. And I would say like, didn't it bother you? Like when millions of people died, or like when the hol- like knowing about the Holocaust. Now that it hit home for you, now like you're questioning whether God is is like true and just. But sometimes that's what it takes, and yeah. um, and that's sometimes what will hit the hardest. Um, we because that's how we are. That's how we're made. We care deeply about those around us, and sometimes our faith gets shaken up only when we see those people suffer, and then we can realize what shit. This happens to everybody. <laughs> and it shows also just that a lot of the stuff that, and this is, I think, his point, like a lot of the stuff that we believe is on shaky ground, the stuff that allows mm-hmm. us to think that everything is good and progressing yeah. and it makes sense and it's just like all, we haven't really examined that. Right. And so what we need and what Tolstoy uh, got was just a few shots to the system that made him like actually reflect uh, in a serious way. And one of the things he thinks his Russian aristocratic, that whole group of artists and, you know, successful, wealthy landowners, they're fundamentally unserious people who haven't uh, really examined the grounds that allow them to carry on in the kind of complacent way that they do. Right. You know, there's a part here where he says that like after that, he was worn out um, and he had mental confusion. And, you know, this is when he was working as an arbiter, sort of like uh, trying to make peace between the lords and the serfs. He fell ill, threw up everything and went away to the Bashkirs in the steppes to breathe fresh air, drink cummies and live a merely animal life, which f- sounded like just a kind of awesome thing to do. <laughs> Yeah, like outward bound for uh, Russian people (laughs) having an existential crisis. Yeah. So I I like the way he describes it, and it's very, like, reminded me of Ivan Illich. He says, It happens with me as it happens with everyone who contracts a fatal internal disease. At first, there were insignificant (laughs) symptoms of an ailment, which the patient ignores. Just these little doubts, you know. Then these systems recur more and more frequently until they merge into one continuous duration of suffering. The suffering increases, and before you can turn around, the patient discovers what he already knew, that the thing that he had taken for a mere indisposition is in fact the most important thing on earth to him is in fact his death. And so like mm. all of a sudden like uh, he he's describing a, a kind of mental breakdown but that yeah. comes on so gradually that you don't even notice it until it's making you start to question whether you want to live or not. Yeah. You know, we need to read Kierkegaard. I, I couldn't help but think of Kierkegaard when I was reading this. Definitely. Um, and sort of his description of like the sickness unto death and the sort of anxiety and especially the leap of faith, which we'll get to. Yeah. 
And, and here's where it starts. Art he starts articulating the problem. He said he didn't know the reason for anything. He just asked himself why. It's like the Nagel problem in the absurd. Yeah. Uh, he's like, so you'll have 6,000 disciantans in the Samara pro province and 300 horses. What then? And he would go down the line of all the different things, including the last one. Very well. Okay, you're going to be more famous than Gogol or Pushkin or Shakespeare and Moliere. More face famous than all the writers in the world. So what? And I could yep. find absolutely no reply. Yeah. It's all just very Ecclesiastes too. Very like, Ecclesiastes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. fact, I was a badass, but uh, but who cares? <laughs> but who cares? Like, what's it all for? And, 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 and that's right. And I think like people who are successful and people, you know, in every kind of relative stage of, of life and like, like you do start to realize that that's a question that you can pose without answering. I mean, we talked about this, I'm sure, in the absurd episode. It, we, we, well, you and I were talking a little bit, not directly about this, but just about uh, uh, you get to a point in life and you're like, well, what's my contribution going to be? Like, what, what does it matter? Anyway, like I, you, you can't be... Ref you can't be a reflective person and not get somewhere there. I don't think like, you know, how yeah. you deal with those questions. Um, some people can easily push them out of their mind. Um, and Tolstoy says that he would try to just engage in as much self-deception as possible. But, but I do like how he ends. I love how he ends chapter three, right after what you said, um, where that the, he never had a foundation to be able to handle these kinds of questions. So he says, I felt that what I had been standing on had collapsed and that I had nothing left under my feet. What I had lived on no longer existed and there was nothing left to live on. Just despair. So then this is now we're entering crisis mode. And here's yeah. where I have some, I, I feel like the case against living isn't as airtight as Tolstoy does. <laughs> um, yeah. But what he gets across so vividly is it's like, at the, like he had no desires, he said, whose satisfaction he would have found it reasonable. He just, it, it just stopped mattering to him whether he got his desired fulfilled or not. And, and once that happened, it was like, well, who, then who cares about anything? Like yeah. uh, the so what question isn't like a kind of academic, oh yeah, what does it matter that I'm like the best novelist that ever lived? <laughs> it's like, it, it's, it becomes like a practical problem of why should I act at all if I don't yeah. care what happens? It's interesting that it, that it, for some people would become so, you know, it sounds like just true depression, but it's, it's this existential despair that ends up um, being so strong that it, he ceases to be motivated to do anything. And I can't say that I've ever gotten to that point where we're no. like, I just don't want to do anything. And um, it's like, uh, so he's not yet 50 years old. So he's in, uh, he's in good health. He says very good health. And, uh, he has a wife. He, yeah, has he starts bragging children. about how good a health he's in. He's yeah, like, exactly. That I, was I was like more fit than like most people my age. I could most of the peasants that I worked with, they were like, damn, <laughs> And he had written Warren, like he's the most celebrated author maybe in the world and like just undeniably just the supreme artist. And yet, like he said, he had to employ ruses against myself to keep from committing suicide. He says, like, it seemed to him like somewhere someone was now amusing themselves, laughing at me at the way I lived for 30 or 40 years, studying, growing, developing in body and soul, laughing at how I had completely matured intellectually and had reached the summit from which life reveals itself, only to stand there like an utter fool, clearly seeing that there's nothing in life, nothing that never was and never will be. 
and it makes him laugh. So he feels like the universe is almost like antagonistic. It's laughing at how stupid and petty and pathetic he was thinking right. that like all these things had like something that there were stakes to anything, you know? Right. Like a demon being like, ha, I made you, I made you think any, something mattered. Yeah. I, yeah. Like, In the way that yeah. we do, like, I remember like with a cat, like my cat, when I was first with uh, my now wife and we were living in an apartment with our cat and we saw him like walking in front of a TV and like, just we called him to come like uh, on the couch with us, and he's like, "No, fuck that!" And he just kept walking in the kitchen, and we were laughing like, "Oh, he's busy. He's got a lot of shit to do. He, he doesn't have time. <laughs> he doesn't have time for us." And then I remember thinking then, but like, couldn't somebody say that about us? You know, for all the things that we do, like, "Oh, we're busy. We don't have time. Like, we you know we have to go to this committee meeting, or or you know, put out this episode, or whatever. You know, right? Yeah." If someone were above us, they would laugh. Yeah. Um, yeah. They maybe are right now. Maybe they are. Um, fuckers. <laughs> uh, yeah. And he says that he still feared death, though, right? So so even though he's feels like he's this meaninglessness is moving him toward the conclusion that that um well, one, death is inevitable, and two, nothing, none of his actions are meaningless. So why not die sooner rather than later? He still doesn't want to die. Right. right, which he which he will uh, say is the cowardly kind of yeah. solution at at this stage. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to talk about the Eastern fable? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, mm -hmm. so so he says there is an Eastern fable told long ago of a traveler overtaken on a plane by an enraged beast. Escaping from the beast, he gets into a dry well, but sees at the bottom of the well a dragon that has opened its jaws to swallow him. And the unfortunate man, not daring to climb out lest he should be destroyed by the enraged beast and not daring to leap to the bottom of the well lest he should be eaten by the dragon, seizes a twig growing in a crack in the well and clings to it. His hands are growing weaker, and he feels he will soon have to resign himself to the destruction that awaits him above or below, but he still clings on. Then he sees that two mice, a black and a white one, go regularly round and round the stem of the twig to which he is clinging and gnaw at it, and soon the twig itself will snap and he will fall into the dragon's jaws. The traveler sees this and knows that he will inevitably perish, but while still hanging, he looks around, sees some drops of honey on the leaves of the twig, reaches them with his tongue, and licks them. So he says he too clung to the twig of life. I love that. Terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Like, obviously, like, I think the dragon is it's almost like a natural death, I guess, yeah. right? And the mice eating at the twig is sort of and, and and but they're eating it at a rate that you can't fully predict so i right. guess that's sort of the uncertainty of how long you have yeah uh, and i guess the black and white is like the sort of day and night um like the 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 as the progression of time yeah um yeah we yeah. all know the it's inevitable right we will all die right um, and it's just a question of when and we're we don't know when uh it, what about the wild beast that's chasing him? That's chasing him. So, yeah, I don't know. I, maybe that is survival. Like you're working hard to survive day in, day out. You're, you're trying to escape the beast. And then there's, you see the dragon is there. It's going to be there at the end no matter what. So you're working hard, you're eating, you're, you're staying away from danger, you're doing everything you can to avoid the beast. Right. 
but the dragon is at the bottom of the well. <laughs> right. No yeah, that's, what. I think that's that's totally right. In all the years that I've taught this, <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever thought of that. But like that 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 the beast is like all like represents all the things you have to do not to die prematurely. Uh, like right. I thought maybe it was rec- like the urge to suicide, but I think your view is right. It's like all the things that you have to do to keep yourself from dying, um, and then meanwhile you're just gonna die like, eventually. <laughs> you're just gonna anyway. die somehow, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like it does seem kind of ridiculous, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so, and the uh, honey, though, the last thing is like the honey, which I guess yeah. he says rep- represents his art and his family who he loved. But like at this point, it's not sweet to him anymore. Like the art, like yeah. it's dr- all the love and the meaningfulness of whatever relation he had to those things just doesn't taste as sweet to him right now because yeah. he now sees that the dragon is inevitable. And yeah. that means then what's the point of all of, of any of it? I feel like someone could make an awesome back tattoo out of this fable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like a dragon and a beast. Um, there's a part that hit kind of hard for me. I don't know why, but he says, fam- he says, family, said I to myself, but my family, wife and children are also human. Yeah. They're placed just as I am. They must either live in a lie or see the terrible truth. And it's like, it. it's very easy to fall back on the fact that you care because your family, you have love. Um, the thought that they're just in the same position as you are and that they're just human. And so it's not, I don't know, like I can't put into words why that sort of hit, you know, you realize sometimes you're like, yeah, you know, my, my kid is just another person. Like I I don't, they're going to have to go through all of this too. Like, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny because it that doesn't hit for me it's like well what did i think that they were in the first place you know like something yeah maybe it is that it's um it's can't be a solution to existential crisis in the way that like i i find solace in that i live for my daughter i do but but, but it's, it's like, why should they live? Why should I love them? Why care for them, bring them up and watch over them? Like, you can ask those questions, but it's like, well, first of all, why not do those things? Like, why not love them? It's like the thing that makes yeah. you the happiest and most joyous. It's good for them. It seems like everyone's a winner there. Like, you don't need answers to those questions, um, why you should bring them up, because everything is, uh, I don't know, like, uh, yeah, this is what life has to offer, but these are the good things that life has to offer. Why are you questioning those and then it's like so they can sink into the despair that eats away at me or turn them over to stupidity that just seems like to me a false dilemma it's like well i don't know if because he thinks this despair is like logically entailed by our condition the condition represented by that fable but i guess that's the part that is the little bit of a missing there's a gap to that that um that i've never fully gotten i think I, 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 yeah, we can talk about. Yeah. You yeah. know, when, when we, um, well, okay. So, so I think what he's just saying, like he's, he's bordering maybe on some, something like antinatalism here yeah, where he says, sure. why, like I brought these people into existence and yet they're going to have to go through the same shit as me unless they're stupid. Right. So it's hey, like, why? That's the false dilemma, I think. <laughs> like not necessarily <laughs> because. I think well, he's yeah. he's in that dilemma right now. He thinks that he, yeah. he could have gone on being stupid and ignorant about the truth, like this harsh truth of existence, or he could confront it. And both of those seem like terrible uh, options to him. He doesn't want to be stupid and, and fooled, right, by 
by whatever the the false uh, hope in that anything that you do matters. You know, I can see why you, you would think if my child is intelligent at all, they might come to this depth of despair that I do, sure. and or or they would be stupid. But I think what you're saying though is that he hasn't got he hasn't gotten to the point that uh, Nagel gets to in in the absurd, which is. Right. A, a solution that Tolstoy, I don't think, ever really arrives to, which is what you were getting at, which is there is meaning in relationships. There is meaning in art. There doesn't have to be a further justification. Yeah, there's, there's, you don't have to keep digging um, past that. I think the key is that the honey has lost its sweetness. That's not something yeah. that's rational. Like one, like two things are inevitable. He will, the mice are going to finish eating the twig and you're going to fall into the dragon. But what's not inevitable or logically entailed by anything is whether you find the honey sweet or not, right? Like, and I think yeah. the fact that he didn't find the honey sweet, the fact that these pleasures are no longer pleasures for him, that is an emotional reaction to the facts that is no more logically entailed than the emotion of like uh seize the day or something like well then we should just enjoy everything to the utmost while it, while it can like he's gonna have some some problems with a kind of epicurean version of that which we'll get to but like yeah. this this thing that's always bothered me about the way he presents the problem like either you're a just a idiot or are totally self-deluded you should get to this this life or death point where the fact that you're eventually going to die and that uh, all these relationships will be extinguished like that should make you just question whether you want to live at all well to to defend him a bit this is the same sort of core foundational intuition that he has um as as he does with the empathy for his brother dying or for the man being sacrificed yeah. where where it, there's something in the core of him that thinks one we can't do we can't make other people suffer like this that's terrible and two um we're living under delusion that we're all like the beasts the beast is there so much of what we do is is to distract ourselves from this harsh truth and that i i get that he's feeling this at his core um and and I get totally. why it would suck the sweetness out of out of his life. Um, I don't think he would think. Well, I mean, he does talk like it enta- it is entailed. Right? He does talk like this is the only conclusion that you can reach. There is, you know, when he talks about trying to find meaning, he he also has a, sort of a lengthy discussion of science and seeking answers in science. Oh yeah, science I and philosophy and philosophy and yeah. and I guess that he, you know, he was living in this age of enlightenment and and science did offer answers to a lot of things. I, I never thought that anybody would think that science would have an answer to like the meaning of life. Um, but <laughs> I mean, they were... the moral landscape, friend of the podcast, <laughs> Sam Harris, right? Like, yeah. I, I, I think there are a lot of people who disagree who that with that. Optimism, yeah. Yeah, that I guess so. Um, I think there are a lot of books like that in that line. Well, Hume's law is odd. It's much more complicated than that. But I like the way he describes science, right? It's like they don't 
They give answers to questions I didn't ask, he says. Yep. Sci science right. provides a number of precise answers to questions I had not asked. Answers concerning the chemical composition of the stars, the movement of the sun towards the constellation Hercules, and all these things. He says, but the answer given by this branch of knowledge to my question about the meaning of my life was only this. You are what you call your life. You are a temporary random conglomeration of particles. <laughs> the thing that you have been led to refer to of your as your life is simply the mutual interaction and alteration of these particles. Articles. It's really like Richard Dawkins could be writing yeah. this, right? You're yeah. a little lump of something randomly stuck together. The lump decomposes. The decomposition of this lump is known as your life. The lump falls apart, and thus the decomposition ends, as do all your questions. I was going to say less Dawkins, even the more Crick, like that, the kind of naive science where it's like, oh, science has discovered that we are, you know, this this hardcore reductionism that, that yeah. somehow has implications to them for, for identity and for... For meaning, the best but, science can do is is tell you how these things work, and maybe give you this terror that you are just a bunch of cells working together to make a human being. But it's not going to give you any answers in the. And positive. it's not for anything. Yeah, it's, it's not. not for there's no that. purpose for yeah. it. It's just this thing that happens, and yeah. like they're according to these natural processes. You know, it's funny because I think uh, sort of snidely saying this sounds like Dawkins or or Crick. Like it sounds. It's almost like shock journalism, kind yeah. of like about. Like, like, you know, like, this is it. You can't handle the truth, but this is it. Um, but it's, like, also true, kind of. It's kind of how <laughs> I actually... It's it's also, like, I do kind of think in the end, even though I'm temperamentally maybe attracted to, to not phrasing it in these ways, like... Yeah. Like, do I think it's more than that in spite of my, you know, agnosticism? Like, not really, you know? <laughs> um... I'm just not bothered that that's the only. Yeah, I, I don't have like it, it doesn't deeply bother me to know like the the reductionist accounts don't deeply bother me because I I just think well obviously that the organization that came together for yeah. all these particles to exist in this time and place that is me that's just another way of saying I'm gonna die I guess right um, right <laughs> at that level yeah. of analysis it doesn't bother me right, right? there's and a I, great it, this is a in in um, Star Trek the next generation there are these little like aliens who um, they're pretty microscopic but they becomes they're they're sentient and when they finally are able to translate what they're trying to communicate to the humans they're calling they're they're saying that we are ugly bags of mostly water <laughs> and that's I've always thought that's just a great way to describe human beings. Yeah, like especially me. Mostly. <laughs> like, I go to the hospital because I drink uh, too much water. <laughs> that's uh, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, like, and then philosophy, he says, um, and there's some good lines here. I wish I hope philosophy he says at least gets the question but just finds different ways of phrasing the question and <laughs> clarifying the question. And whenever it tries to actually answer it, it just comes up to the, the there's no answer, you know? Yeah, he's basically accusing, yeah, like you said, philosophers of being circular. I mean, like, oh yeah, why live? Because we have this will to live or something. Or like, it's the life power that makes us have like the life yeah. force we want to continue. And it's not, it's not adding anything. He, even at some point says like, if, yeah, if you have an equation, like it's whatever you put into it is what's going to come out and you're not getting any philosophers aren't getting anywhere new when they, when they're no. doing this analysis. They're just like, you know, probably at some point philosophers recognize the problem if maybe mm -hmm. they weren't the first, but they, and then they've just been 
uh, formulating it in different ways for, (laughs) you know, 3,000 years or whatever. Uh, And, but, but when they're really being honest, they're like, I don't know, but here's a new way of clarifying the question. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I've never read Schopenhauer, by the way. No, I was really. thinking that I haven't really, just aside from excerpts either, but yeah. we should. We should, yeah. There's a great, I highlighted this part. He quotes Schopenhauer at length. That we abhor annihilation so greatly, or what is the same thing, our desire to live, is simply another expression of the fact that we strenuous, strenuously will life and are nothing but this will and know nothing besides it. Yeah. So, what do you how, how do you interpret that? Like? I could not uh, like it's yeah. I, yeah, I felt that's why I felt like I needed to read more Schopenhauer. That's which, the like the beast, right? Like we're just yeah. running from the beast, so we're yeah. strenuously willing ourselves to live without. Ha- but we're just doing it because there's a beast behind us. We're not like thinking about right what it's all for or something. And we're like yeah. built. We're we're built to want to live yeah it is what life is is a desire to continue life right whether that's through daily survival or through reproduction like we life wills to continue living and to continue life yeah Um, all right you know what we still have a long way to go david and the risk of trying our listeners patience (laughs) yeah they can only handle so many three-hour episodes (laughs) exactly like our last one was uh like two and a half hours so maybe we should stop here and pick this up again there's so much more to to go this might be a good separation point because he has lost his faith has lost his sense of why anything matters um next time he's going to lists some alternatives of how to deal with that situation and all of them are awful and he's going to be at this like bottoming out point where he's considering suicide but then he will turn to faith as a as a way out but what he means by faith is i think very much open to question and yeah like uh so we still have a lot more to get into here. All right, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Just a very bad wizard.